0: i'm julia turner and this is the slate culture gab fest jolly green lawyer edition it's wednesday september 21st 2022 on today's show she hulk attorney at law the new disney plus show that crosses the marvel televisual universe with my favorite genre the legal procedural and then Moon Age Daydream, a trippy new documentary about the beauty of being David Bowie. And finally, Hollywood's documentary Cash Grab, a new story from The Hollywood Reporter about the changing economics and culture of nonfiction filmmaking. Joining me today is Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hi, Dana.
2: Hey, hey, Julia.
0: And alas, Steve, our fearless captain is out. Sick. Wish him well. He's on the mend. Uh, But we will be joined by a panoply of wonderful co-hosts for each of our segments. So I will introduce them segment by segment. All right, Dana, you ready to make a show? I'm ready if you are. First up, we're joined by Slate Business and Technology Editor and, in my view, Chief Comics Correspondent John Fisher to discuss She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Hi, John.
3: Hey, how's it going?
0: Good. This new Marvel TV show on Disney Plus stars Tatiana Maslany, formerly the star of Orphan Black, as an up-and-coming lawyer who accidentally gets hulked in a car accident with her cousin, Bruce Banner, uh, but who then decides superhero is not what she wants. She just wants to go back to her life as a lawyer. Before we dig into our conversation with John, let's listen to a clip here. We'll hear Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk, chatting with her cousin, Bruce Banner, a.k.a. The Hulk.
3: Listen, I know you didn't ask for this, but whether you like it or
4: not, you're now a superhero. And who's gonna protect the world if it isn't people like
0: us are you
2: quoting a comic book right now i'm sorry the idea of being a superhero is not appealing to me i'm not you and i'm not going to become you i don't need to join some secret government contractor squad and have my entire life taken away from me
3: my life wasn't taken away
2: really oh so you didn't wind up alone Hiding away on some remote beach with no friends, no relationships, never seeing your family, and definitely not dealing with a decade's worth of trauma? Why would you want that for me, Bruce? Your cautionary tale.
0: That's a price you have to pay for keeping the world safe.
2: It's not wrong that I am choosing to help people in the way that I've always wanted to. Hey, I spent a lifetime running from this aspect of myself. Denying half of your being is no way to live. Trust me.
0: Very angsty. That The angstiness of that conversation, which takes place in the pilot, uh, perhaps belies the tone of the show, which qu- fairly quickly pivots into a frisky half-hour legal procedural, a.k.a. my favorite television genre. Um, and tonally, the project is pretty different from certainly the Marvel Cinematic Universe and even some of the uh, more formally inventive pieces of the Marvel Televisual Universe. Uh, John, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about She-Hulk's history in the comics and what you made of this television adaptation of the character? Sure.
3: Um, She-Hulk is obviously the female Hulk. That's sort of the very basic concept. But I think the most important thing about the character is that she is aware she is in a comic book. Um, the character was created in 1980 for you know somewhat cynical reasons, which is that at the time, the Hulk TV show with Lou Ferrino was, was a big hit. Marvel feared that the creators of that show would themselves create a female Hulk character. Um, so they wanted to get ahead of it and own the rights. So they, <laughs> yeah, they, so they created G-Hulk. Um, you know, the first issue in 1980 was actually written by Stanley Lee um, and drawn by John Buscema, who's one of the great Silver Age Marvel artists. Um, it's, a, it's a very, you know, solid and interesting issue. And it's one of the last characters that Lee would create for a very long time for Marvel. You know, but then from there, it goes to a different creative team and it's, not the most distinct comic book, and it only lasts 25 issues. From there, She-Hulk bounces around. She's in the Avengers. She's in the Fantastic Four. The character gets very interesting in 1989 when Marvel hires John Byrne, who you know, was a very popular creator uh, at Marvel who did Fantastic Four and had worked on the X-Men to revamp She-Hulk. Um, and his approach is he wanted a version of the character that was highly self-referential, you know my theory of she-hulk is that while the idea of a character who is aware of her genre's tropes is itself a trope uh this is a very very good version of that trope the the original run is very very funny and 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 holds up uh on on the first issue um there's some were bubbles on the cover which is rare and she says okay this is your second chance if you don't buy my book this time i'm going to come to your house and rip up all your x-men <laughs> it's just a very very funny um uh, book and you know, Byrne himself is a creator with some baggage, um, and the book also, you know, repeatedly engineers situations in which uh, She-Hulk, you know, ends up wearing almost no clothing. But uh, beyond that, actually, I think the the run is is really fun and it really holds up.
0: That's so interesting. All right, so then, what do you make? And I think it explains some of the pieces of the show that feel uh, a little unusual, maybe to a novice viewer like me. How do you think this adaptation uh, does?
3: Basically, I'm vibing with it. I I think it's fun. It's an easy watch. I don't have any issues with it. I don't think it's amazing, but I don't think She-Hulk was ever, you know, meant to be amazing. Uh, you know, even if, like, you find, um, you know, the sort of uh, gender critique that the show is making in a kind of funny and maybe a little bit too on-the-nose way. Um, you know, even if you find that, you know, edifying coming from Marvel – I don't think the show is like, you know, trying too hard to do anything too ambitious. Um, It's really just having fun. And I think it succeeds.
0: All right. Dana, tell us your views on She-Hulk based on your early exposure to this character.
2: I mean, I will say that when we floated the idea of doing this, my initial thought was, oh, another Marvel TV show that's going to be just okay. And why do, Why are we talking about every single one of these? And then I heard the name Tatiana Maslany, that she played the She-Hulk and, you know, Jennifer Walters, I think her name is, who is the lawyer version of the She-Hulk and immediately wanted to see it because well, when we talked about Orphan Black back in, I believe that was in our live show in Canada years ago that we talked about the great Canadian TV show Orphan Black, she just struck me as such a shapeshifter to use a superhero term and somebody who i would want to see in any role and uh and i do think that she is the animating spirit of the show otherwise (laughs) almost nothing about this show works for me and maybe that's just because i'm not as neither am i a huge episodic tv person nor a huge marvel person so the combination um really didn't do much for me. Also, the direct address to the camera, not knowing any of the background of the fact that that happened in the original comic, but just at this moment in pop culture history, that's such an overdone trope. And I'm so sick of people addressing the camera from Kevin Spacey in that, whatever it was, House of Cards show on. There's just been this rampant rage for for characters addressing the camera. And just recently reviewing that new um, uh, Austin adaptation, Emma with um, Dakota Johnson, I was decrying her awful direct-to-camera address. It's only when somebody like Phoebe Waller-Bridge in the second season of Fleabag, Really disrupts that and does something interesting with it that I can even stand to see it anymore. So when Tatiana turned to the camera in the very first, I believe the very first shot of this show and started giving us the setup, uh, I was immediately suspicious. But yeah, I would agree with John. The show is pretty fun. I appreciate it. It's half an hour long. It's lighthearted. Uh, and it does a pretty good job of not feeling too branded as it ties together all of these familiar characters. Tim Roth, who played a villain in the Avengers series of movies, reappears as his character, who is now the client of, uh, of, of the She-Hulk lawyer. And that is funny. But to me, this this show doesn't get that much further than the joke of the title. I mean, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, is a very funny title. Sort of the equivalent of Doogie Howser, M.D. The title does all the work for you. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the show doesn't really get super far beyond just the funny paradox of having a big green superhero who is also, you know, a crack uh, defense attorney. But that in itself is a funny enough premise that I think if this appeals to you, you should give it a watch.
0: I was fascinated to watch this because I have found kind of diminishing returns in the Marvel television universe. And Dana, we have skipped so many of the shows. You're right.
2: We didn't even do Moon Knight with my boyfriend, Oscar Isaac.
0: Yeah, we didn't do Moon Knight. We've skipped a bunch of them. But in any event, I love, by by the ghost of June Thomas, there is nothing I love more on television than a legal procedural. Like, I I, I just love lawyer shows. And I, the things that are best about this show, you know, it, it has the legal procedural genre, one of my faves, and it also has the, like, young woman comes of age professionally at work genre you know i think younger is maybe like a show in that genre um i'm fond of that genre as well and i think the young woman finds herself at work aspects of this sitcom work better than the legal procedural parts of it like the this is gonna seem like a weird critique the lawyering is lame (laughs) Like, the legal issues are lame, relative. Like, if you if you actually watch lawyer shows, just the complexity of the issues at play and the kind of phony sophistication. And I get that that's its own shtick. It's, it happens in medical dramas, too, of, like, it's not just a heart attack. It's a heart attack with a complication of the blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, not just an eminent domain problem. There's a complexity to the legal issue. But part of the shtick of procedural television is that you... Like do the research and 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 kind of get into the weeds, and that's what gives the show some of its kind of heft and dramatic thrust. And you know, there was a big flap about the CGI around the She Hulk uh, when when the trailer came out, and some of the the VFX didn't look that good. And I think they generally look better in the finished show. But um, the thing that actually seems flimsy and unbelievable here to me is is the legal concepts that they're fighting about. Like all the all the cases seem like, um, you know, those facades in an old West town where there's nothing behind them. The things that have more heft are some of the characters and some of the relationships and really just Tatiana Maslani's performance. She's incredibly likable as Jennifer Walters. She has an amazing I mean probably the best writing in the show is this little monologue she gives in the pilot where Bruce Banner is so confused about why she's so in control of her Hulk powers. And he spent 15 years, you know, brooding and worrying that he's going to destroy the world until he sciences up some way to control his rage. And Tatiana Maslany is like, yeah, I control my rage every day. That's just being a woman in the world. Like, this is no prob for me, bro. Um, which, you know, that's like lightly done and conceptually funny and astute. Um, But the most disappointing thing to me about it is that the way it plays with gender and body are kind of weird, you know? Like, the physicality of the She-Hulk, she's just kind of like a big blow-up doll. Like, she doesn't actually seem that muscly, and she's got... Um, you know, straight hair versus curly, which as th- I just the notion that having your hair blown out is what makes you a hottie is irritating.
2: <laughs> you know, I can't remember now if we talked about Thor Love and Thunder on this show or not, or whether I just wrote about it for Slate.
0: But... You did. I th- you think you did while I was traveling.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, th- th- there's a similar thing going on with Natalie Portman's character and her super version in that movie. And uh, and it's something that just seems sort of built in at this point to the Marvel Universe. Like, yeah, girl boss, girl power, but Ultimately when a woman who is already, you know, conventionally attractive becomes a superhero, she gets more attractive. And the same thing what happens to Natalie Portman's character is she gets blonder, she gets like a long blonde blowout, and I think also looks bustier as does Tatiana Maslany She Hulk. So yeah, there's this totally unproblematized and very no- non-feminist assumption that to become a superhero as a woman is to become more hot. And it would of course be much braver if she in fact bulked up and looked genuinely scary and more like the Bruce Banner version of Hulk when she turned into her green self and that people had to deal with the gendered politics
0: of that. What did you make, John, of, you know, how this show handles the kind of gender aspects of being a bulked up green boss lady uh, versus the, the various ways in which the comics did it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I also honed in on that line that you were talking about. I think, you know, in the comic books, the the sort of conceit is that um, she's in the car with Bruce and then something happens in this case um, actually some gangsters try to assassinate her it, it's it doesn't really matter but the point is Bruce has to give her a transfusion on the fly uh, and so in the comic books the idea is that well she got less of his gamma irradiated blood so she she doesn't completely rage out she still you know is herself when she becomes She Hulk um, so the conceit here is that uh, you know, you know, as you say, she's a woman, so sort of, um, you know, the, her sort of like baseline existence is dealing with, um, you know, r- rage and frustration that is put upon her. So you know, she's much more well equipped uh, to be uh, to be a Hulk, unlike Bruce, who has uh, been a mess for fifteen years. Uh, does it work? I-, I think it's. I mean, I think it's. I think it's a clever twist on the character. I think that um, the show kind of like underlines the theme like a lot to the point where I think they could probably just, uh, be more subtle about it. I do think that, yeah, the way that they, um, depict the characters is, is interesting. You know, the character existed for like 30 years before it was regularly written by a woman. Um, but eventually the comic books did basically decide to bulk She-Hulk up because they realized that the sort of, um, you know, supermodel-esque physique really made no sense if we're going to, you know, go with the entire Hulk concept. So now that She-Hulk is really, you know, really Hulk-like in her physique, it probably makes more sense that way. I think that, you know, the show just doesn't really want to go there because it doesn't want to be a show about a monster. It just wants to be a fun
0: legal procedural. All right. Well, I think we universally would tell listeners that if any of this sounds appealing to you, check it out. And if it doesn't, uh, move on with your day. (laughs) It's She-Hulk, colon, attorney at law on Disney+. John, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Thank
3: you for having me.
2: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply? See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: All right. Now is the moment in our show when we talk business. Dana, what have we got?
2: Julia, our only item of business is that I'm going to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment, which I'm actually really champing at the bit for. I can't wait. It comes from a listener question from a listener named Christian who writes, Do you have any unfinished or not realized or produced piece of media, book, music, film that you wish existed or was finished? Examples include books such as Emma by Charlotte Bronte, the unfinished novel she was working on at her death, The Watsons by Jane Austen, same story. Natasha Nezanova by Dostoevsky, did not know about that. The Pale King by David Foster Wallace, films such as David Fincher's Strangers on a Train remake never made, and many others. I hope this question would reveal more of what makes you tick beyond what you've already shared with us. I love this because I have some of my favorite works of art that fit into this category, and I'm very curious to hear what my co-panelists have to say. So that will be our segment at the end of the show. If you're a Slate Plus member, of course, you will hear that after our main three segments. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus and when you do you get ad free podcasts bonus content like the segment i just described which many other shows have as well and unlimited access to all the writing on slate.com you'll never hit a paywall if you're a slate plus member and you will also be supporting us and our work and keeping the magazine alive these memberships are really important for slate so please if you haven't already sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus once again that's slate.com slash culture plus okay on with the show
0: Joining us for our next segment is Carl Wilson, the wonderful music critic of Slate. Hello, Carl. Welcome.
4: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We are gathered here today to discuss Moon Age Daydream, uh, a new documentary from Brett Morgan about the life and art and vibes of David Bowie. Uh, It's a documentary using a, a trove of footage that... Morgan gained access to and it puts them together not with the usual talking head uh, parade but with kind of an trippy, artistic, immersive brio that uh, my co-panelists here responded to quite differently before we get into that, let's listen to a clip Uh, here you'll hear a moment of introspection from Bowie he's reflecting on his past and trying to make sense of who he is It feels now that I I don't come from anywhere, but I
4: I, I was born in Brixton. When were you born? What year? 1947, January the 8th. Makes me a Capricorn with an Aquarius ascendant and a Leo descendant. How
1: much now is left of the lad from Brixton, do you
4: think? Not very much, I think. I mean, you know... What moves on? I never got... I, I never became who I should have been. I spent an awful lot of my life actually looking for myself, you know, and understanding what it was that I, why, what I existed for, what was it that really made me happy in life and who exactly I was and who are the parts of myself I was trying to hide from. I think a lot of us are huge senses of denial about who we are and where we we exist in the world.
0: All right, Dina. Let's start with you as our film critic. Tell us a little bit about this film and its texture and what you made of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get a sense from just that one little clip, obviously, because most music documentaries have things like that, you know, a clip of an interview of an artist talking about their work. Uh, But this movie is unusual in that it is nothing but that. The only narrator, really the only voice we hear other than some interviewers asking him questions is David Bowie's voice uh, from the very beginning, which, among other things, gives this a very unearthly quality of being, you know, narrated from the beyond by this person who already seemed from the beyond when he was alive. Uh, And... We'll get more into, you know, with with Carl, the, the visuals that go along with that and how that works. But I mean, essentially, that that is the most important thing to know about this documentary going in. It is in no way a kind of behind-the-music-style exposition um, of the person's chronological life. And in fact... We uh, we hear nothing about David Bowie's first marriage. We hear nothing about his child, which made me wonder whether his son, Duncan Jones, who is a filmmaker himself, maybe refused to be part of it or didn't want to participate. Um, and so the visuals that Brett Morgan uses are all either concert footage of David Bowie, you know, the interview clips, like I mentioned, um or, and, you know, footage that he's gathered of of David Bowie moving around the world, which I think um, David Bowie's estate gave Morgan access to this huge, it was in the millions, the number of, you know, documents and images that he went through over a period of years to make this. And then what I know Carl did not like from his review of this movie on Slate, a lot of filler imagery of, I don't know what you would call it. Some of it is old movie clips. Uh, I know a lot of that stuff um, comes from movies and artists that influenced David Bowie and that were important to him. But some of it, I think, is just selected by Morgan because it looks cool. It's very short on information. And if you go in not knowing much about David Bowie's life, you will not come out knowing a lot more. But you do get a (laughs) great sense of what he was like as a performer and as a conversationalist. And that stuff to me was really, really moving and inspiring. And some of the things, Carl, I want to turn to you now because some of the things that you pointed out in your review is when you were sort of saying, like, um, you know, this is trying to give you sort of David Bowie inspo and that that inspo to you often seemed very banal and flat. Well, maybe I'm just really basic, but I actually walked out of it feeling really transformed and like David Bowie was this sage who was teaching me how to live. And uh, I found him really, really moving as a a talker about his work you know there's so many artists who uh, make great things and but don't want to or are not able to really talk about them and he was not that at all i feel like he was almost his own best critic or explicator in some ways and i absolutely love the way he talked about his own need to create
4: to me the, this film would have worked almost better as a radio documentary, even though of course that's exactly the opposite of what it is, just because Bowie's voice is the most compelling thing about it to me. and. All of the visuals, this kind of endless stream of montage, as you were kind of indicating about with like these old film clips from like every science fiction movie ever made, possibly just in like more space, more space, as much outer space as we can find. And and then lots of lots of concert clips that except for a couple, one extraordinary performance of heroes, for example, from one tour Um a lot of them don't get that much room to breathe because Morgan feels the need to immediately jump in and glitch them up with VFX and cut to more outer space montages and put, like, starbursts bursting um, in them. And and he gets in his own way a, a lot of the time with this kind of frenetic spectacle that I think really kind of detracts from our ability to take things in and then of course there's his refusal to provide any contextual information you never know what year it is in any of the things you're seeing or in any of clips that you're hearing him talk you can kind of roughly guess from the chronology but but you don't have the kind of precise information that would be helpful and, the, and that causes things to go off the rails in some more specific ways that we can get into but like the funny thing for me watching it was the thing that I was most reminded of by all of the whiz bang were those um, (laughs) um, planetarium laser Floyd and laser Zeppelin shows <laughs> right, right. That, that, that in the like 80s were a kind of big thing that I remember going to see when I was like 12 and I was and I felt a little bad as I was kind of approaching writing this review I'm am I, am I really going to compare it to those chintzy laser spectacles and then I read an interview with Morgan in the LA Times where he says that that was one of his primary inspirations <laughs> he wanted it to be like laser Floyd and he wanted it to be like Disneyland he was like i i want my films to be theme park rides and i felt very justified in my sense of suspicion and the feeling of shallowness that i came with it, away with it from because on paper you know i i i if i saw this film described i i would i would like it like it, there's lots and lots to recommend it but i increasingly sitting through it felt annoyed and disappointed and left with a kind of sour taste about just the, the kind of shallow level on which it felt like it was dealing with this incredible you know once in- a- lifetime trove of material that he got to draw on by having access to the, to the, the estate's assets and and that's the thing that, that was really disappointing to me.
2: Yeah, Carl, where I really agree with you, and this is going to be one of those moments where this is a critical triumph for you because you're making me like the movie less. (laughs) So thank you for ruining my joy, but helping me understand the movie. I had some of those same feelings while watching it. Essentially, I was thinking, like, I'm lucky that I already have a sense of the scope and chronology of Bowie's life and career to some extent, Um, particularly because we talked about him on this show after he died in 2016, but also because, you know, I just grew up listening to and growing up along with that music. Um, but as far as a legacy carrier, right? I mean, this film really fails in that aspect. Like if it was trying to get young people, I was thinking about taking my daughter to it, for example, who I know loves Bowie's music, doesn't know a ton about it. Um, you know, loves performance and talking and thinking about performance. Um, but. I almost have the feeling that I would want her first to, you know, watch a behind the music or read a Wikipedia page about Bowie or something, because you do come out of it not knowing anything about his collaborators. You don't even really learn. There's a couple really illustrative stories from his childhood that are briefly told. Um, that I'm really glad are in there, but you don't learn, for example, th- that he grew up in a council estate, you know, and and got into art school. You know that he really did sort of pull himself up out of a life of you know, maybe not poverty, but certainly, um, you know, working class existence to become this, you know, very elite figure in the the global art sphere. And that trajectory isn't really narrated at all. And just on a very simple level, I think you're right. You wouldn't come out of this saying, oh, well, now I have to listen to Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars and, you know, this other album and then comes this album. No, there's not there's not any labeling along the way that would signpost you through that. But I guess I, I bought that because this documentary was selling itself as something unusual and experiential. And because of those experiences it was providing, maybe not, you know, the millions of clips from Fritz Lang's Metropolis that were <laughs> interstitially layered into so many moments, but the actual uh, performances and conversations with Bowie were so cerebral, you know, that the whole movie came off to me as feeling like an experience of of thinking and not just, you know, groovy sensing for, you know, stoners watching a light show.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think again, you know, one of the things I say towards the end of basically a, a review that trashes the movie is that if you love Bowie, you should still see it because there is a lot there. It's just sort of so much less than it could have been and particularly, I think you're right for people who don't have the basic outline in their heads Um, you're not going to figure it out that easily from this movie and then i think there's a flip side too for like real devotees there's not as much as you would have thought in this film of things that we haven't seen before and um of of insights and parts of the story that that we don't already know and so i think part of the reactions are a little bit split often between Um, You know, one friend of mine said they'd really noticed that there was a split between music writers and movie writers in terms of our responses to this film.
2: Yeah, some some more information about influences would have been great. You know, I was thinking about uh, Todd Haynes' fantastic documentary about The Velvet Underground from last year, which you mentioned in your review as well. And, you know, this movie is nowhere near as good, but it is somewhat similar in, in, its, in its approach in that it's, you know, avoiding talking heads, avoiding normal chronological framing. And part of what makes it not work as well is that it, it is not as informed by or interested in music history and influence. And there were moments in this when I was thinking, wow, he really writes like Lou Reed, <laughs> you know, Heroes, what are some other songs I was thinking of? Um, yeah, there's just a period of his songwriting that sounds like Lou Reed could have written some of those songs. And yet, you know, Lou Reed is never mentioned. Uh, I guess he talks about Fats Domino at one point, Bowie does, but we don't really get a sense that much of what music formed him and what music he formed.
4: Yeah, and again, Morgan deals with these like montage techniques to do it. Like there's two or three times in the film where there's this kind of rapid, quick cut through multiple photographs of various artists from history, all of, and if you know who they are and if you're catching it, they all, you know, and Lou Reed, I think, does appear in one of those.
2: As does Buster you, Keaton. You I just have does, to throw as, in as
4: does Buster Keaton. Who, who yes, Bowie absolutely. did love,
2: absolutely. Bowie's on record as having loved him,
4: and who you can see in Bowie's physicality that there's an influence from, like, watches videos and there's you can so there's a lot of silent film in his performance, and of course he's like mime training and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, but Morgan doesn't give him much space to talk about that. There's one moment where. Bowie refers to drawing on like New York underground music of the early seventies. And if you know that what he really means there is Lou Reed in the velvet underground, then you know, but you wouldn't know if you, if you didn't bring that information to the film yourself, because this film is actively hostile to information.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Actively hostile to information is generally my least favorite kind of documentary. Although somehow I felt as a, as a Bowie newbie, novice, haven't really spent much time, certainly with his visuals, which I know is so much of his art. There's a couple of his songs that I love. Um, I did find it pleasing to just be in his presence and, like, get close up to that that image that he spent so much time cultivating. But uh, with this question about technique and sort of information and talking heads versus razzle-dazzle, uh, Dana, can you put this film a little bit in the context of Brett Morgan's other documentary work?
2: Well, I was going to mention that part of why I was jumping up and down to do this as a segment, outside of being really interested in Bowie himself, is that I've really liked Brett Morgan's documentary work in the past. And uh, the, the the documentary I think I first associate him with is one that he co directed back in the early two thousands called "The Kid Stays in the Picture," that was about um, Robert Evans, the the legendary Hollywood producer who was you know connected with a lot of big new Hollywood projects and is. The this huge personality and Mm -hmm. it was a really also an unusual approach to a documentary did something that you see now more in docs but that was really new at the time which was taking old photographs and sort of making them three-dimensional and making them appear to move sort of turning them into these little um, I don't know how to describe it like little uh, tableau vivant within a photograph things and it was it was unusual inventive funny I really recommend that documentary actually and so I knew that this, at the very least, was going to be something unusual. And I have to say, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sticking by my guns. Like, I respect what this movie is trying to do. It isn't perfect. It could do a lot of things better and differently. And I don't love the relationship it assumes with the viewer in terms of information, as Carl was saying. But I don't think it's dumb. I never felt like it was condescending to the viewer's intelligence, um, and I never felt like it was telling me things that were really obvious and that I, I, I already knew. It was a little too dependent on sensation and visual trickery. But as Carl says, like what you're hearing is so great and what you're seeing when Bowie is in performance is so great that um, to me, it still carried the day. And I feel like certainly Bowie lovers should see it and Bowie newbies should see it along with, you know, a little bit of, of grounding in um, in the actual facts
0: of his life. All right. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this film. You can find Carl's great piece about it on Slate. And the film is Moon Age Daydream out in theaters now. Thanks, Carl.
4: Thank you so much.
1: Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean interior paint and primer in one offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boy's easy-opening, smooth-pouring container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards.
2: I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life & Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life & Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.
0: All right, joining us for our third segment is Slate Senior Editor Sam Adams. Hi, Sam. Welcome.
1: Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, we are here today to discuss a really interesting new cover story in The Hollywood Reporter called Inside the Documentary Cash Grab. Uh, In it, Mia Galupo and Katie Kilkenny report on how the major investment of the streamers, particularly Netflix, in documentary has turned nonfiction filmmaking from a sleepy backwater full of uh, strange artists to... Uh, money-soaked megaverse of uh, documentary production companies churning out projects, tackling topics that are more pop and less arcane than perhaps documentarians have done in the past, and perhaps starting to tinker with the unwritten ethics of documentary, uh, sometimes paying subjects or finding ways to not pay subjects but pay them anyway uh, in ways that have given some of the grand eminences of documentary a bit of pause. Sam, you are always um, the the kind of MVP of being up on everything we ever talk about, but you uh, are particularly interested in documentary. So we'll start with you. Uh, I'm curious what you made of this piece and what you thought was most interesting in it.
1: Uh, I think it's a really interesting piece. I mean, I spend um, a lot of my time at at film festivals, um, particularly uh, True False in in Missouri, kind of hanging out with documentary filmmakers because they're just like really fun and don't have as many demands on their time as uh, fiction filmmakers. Um, So this is kind of, you know, the water that they swim in. And as a result, kind of don't tend to talk about in quite the terms that this article does because they they don't need to pull back and look at it. So it's interesting to take a step back and have this... Kind of view from 10,000 feet of how much the documentary world has been shifting in the last couple of years. Um, As you mentioned, I mean, the the biggest uh, factor is really just money, uh, particularly from Netflix, from a lot of the other streamers and awards. Um, How much of that has flooded into this space? It's also changing the kinds of projects that people work on, uh, not only the projects that they shop, but the ones that are brought to them, which tend a lot more towards sort of sensational and, and true crime stories. Um, and an interesting thing for me, too, is is also uh, changing the kinds of approaches that they're taking to that subject matter. There's a quote in the story from Joe Berlinger, who is, uh, you know, probably one of the filmmakers most responsible for the current documentary renaissance going back to the 90s with um, movies like Brothers Keeper and the Paradise Lost trilogy. And those are really sort of, you know, immersive, very taste style looks at true crimes and how they affected a community. And Joe is now um, doing, you know, found footage stories about Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Buddy for Netflix. Um, and he says in this article, I quite honestly, he's like, I don't even have time to look at all the footage that I get anymore. So instead of documentary filmmakers going in and kind of following people around for several years, they're just getting archive um, footage delivered to them and having, you know, assistants kind of sort through it and really, Inevit- inevitably, you're getting things that feel more sort of you know prepackaged and easy to consume, um, and less kind of immersive, less pushing the boundaries of the form.
0: Yeah, Dana, I'm curious. I mean, you obviously have been regularly sampling the documentary waters in your role as film critic for you know the last decade plus. How, how, do you feel like you've seen some of these forces at play in the work that you encounter as our film critic at Slate?
2: I would definitely say so. And especially in my work, both in as a film critic and maybe not a TV critic, but, you know, someone who's watching a lot of streaming documentaries from TV. And I found this piece really illustrative. It's a really good example, I think, of an entertainment industry behind the scenes business piece that really illuminates something that you might have noticed as a critic, but you're not quite you didn't see it as part of a of a larger business trend that was happening behind the scenes. I mean, of course, documentary has gotten more marketable with streaming because now we can have these, you know, true crime TV shows or things like Wild Wild Country, that um, very long form, I think too long form documentary about a cult that we talked about on the show. Uh, it just seems like... Well, one of the the sources interviewed for this piece says that his metaphor is that documentary or nonfiction, you know, filmmaking and television in the last decade or so since streaming has risen. He says it went from being an artisanal espresso shop in Italy to a Starbucks, right? I mean, it became something that was kind of producible at scale, that had much more of a mass audience than before. And, you know, there are a lot of people talking about how film festivals, you know, used to be places where the documentary was sort of like the charity case over there. Like, oh, that interesting little movie that won't make any money. Now, you know, there's whole production companies just mining the news for, you know, things that would make good streamable nonfiction content. So. It makes sense that there would be uh, shifts in the way that the form is handled as soon as money enters at at that level. And I thought in particular some of the stuff about paying sources or paying subjects in a documentary was fascinating because it was more double-sided than it seems. I mean, it's not simply the case that, you know, there's unethical exchanges of money to get big names on camera, though it sounds like some of that is happening. Uh, there is also the question which Ken Burns talks about in this piece of what to do when you know, you're know you talking about a subject who is indigent, who could really use the profits from the documentary. How do you make sure that you're not exploiting a story and you know making money off of somebody without giving them any of the back-end profits? So those conversations are all um, fascinating and things that I did not know were happening behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because it's not the classic story of like, Money corrupts, or now that there's so much money in documentary, it's it's bad, or something like that. It's that there's sort of a small um, cadre of practitioners who, you know, now have access to resources and the potential for expansion, and are suddenly encountering both the challenges of scale. And kind of the the wobbliness of the unwritten rules of their trade, like it, the 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 question you raise around and that the piece raises about can subjects be paid? Um, it, it is totally one that you can argue multiple sides of. It's absolutely a rule in journalism that you don't pay sources and that paying them compromises the integrity of your work. And it is also true, as has been written by many commentators, that there is something fundamentally exploitative about journalism, which is that you are turning people's stories into something for others to consume. And when those people are poor or have less power than you or your institution or your funders or your backers do, there are multiple ways to look at that.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, in a lot of these cases, it sort of depends who the the subjects are, because you know, as the landscape of documentary broadens. In some cases, you're talking about, you know, a movie about Billie Eilish that sold for $25 million. And you're also talking about um, this documentary, The Territory, which is bought by National Geographic, and it's about um, an indigenous tribe in Brazil. Um, you know, whether Billie Eilish makes money off the documentary about her or not is Billie Eilish is making plenty of money off lots of other things. It's really comparatively unimportant. Um, this indigenous Brazilian tribe, um, the article mentions they were sort of cut into the profits of the movie. Um, several of them are credited as not only producers on the film, but cinematographers. And I know one of the filmmakers' goals, um, who is not Brazilian, is to provide people with the tools to tell their own stories. And not just in this movie, but in other ones. I think they might have even like left them some of the equipment when the, the filmmaking was done. Um, but that you know that's a case where part of the reckoning that's going on here is just this ongoing... Um, discussion that's happening in journalism as well about um, who controls the tools to tell the story. Should people be telling their own story? Um, And that just gets... You know, ramped up when the Nat Geo money comes in as well, and I think that's an appropriate and really good conversation. Um, So there's, there's, you know, there are a lot of different currents um, moving around in this world. In this article, but that is one place where I think are changing for the better. Uh, The filmmaker Robert Greene, who made a movie last year called Procession, which is about uh, victims of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, um, he likes to say that he doesn't know if documentaries can change the world, but he does know that they change the lives of the people who are in them. And that can go both ways. They've had really negative effects on people. And I I do think it's incumbent upon the filmmakers to at least try to ensure that the people whose stories they're telling, that their lives change for the better.
0: Dana, did this story make you think differently about any projects you've seen or reviewed or that we've discussed recently? I mean, it's funny that we're talking about this in the same show that
2: we're talking about what I think whether you think it, it works completely or not is is a very auteur driven documentary, one that is clearly not driven by, you know, there's not a producer behind the scenes saying, you know, you gotta hit this story point at moment ten in order to sell this documentary, you know, Moon Age Daydream, this this Bowie documentary we talked about is is clearly a, a brainchild of an of an original vision of what this person wanted to do with this trove of, of material from Bowie. So I guess it would hark more, you know, from the, the pre-streaming era of, of auteur-driven documentaries, if you want to make that that kind of binary distinction. Um, yeah, I mean reading this made me think once again, but with a little more critical perspective on something that happened last year with that uh, Anthony Bourdain documentary Roadrunner, which we talked about on the show and I also, I think, reviewed for Slate which um, I think is a really successful documentary, wonderful to watch if you want to learn about, about Anthony Bourdain's life and his process in making the the travel and food shows that he made But has this deepfake moment that I found really suspect at the time and that seems like it's part of a trend and, you know, that technology is getting better and better, right, at at, at making AI sound real, at, you know, making tricky technology that appears to replicate real life. And the documentary does that at, at, at one moment when you hear a private letter that Anthony Bourdain wrote to a friend, you know, very personal letter about his depression read in his voice. And you're thinking, why is there a high quality audio version of a man reading his own personal letter? Well, it turns out that that was a little moment of AI that was not cop to, you know, including, I believe, in the credits and that the director had to answer for later in the press that, you know, he had done this, I think, somewhat unethical thing of making you think you're hearing Anthony Bourdain talking when you're actually hearing a reproduction of his voice. So it does seem to, that things like that should not have to be um, policed on a, you know, on a one by one basis after people see the movie and start scratching their heads about it. And, you know, obviously, there's not a council of documentarians that's going to sit down on Mount Olympus and decide what they can and can't do. But it just seems like, you know, we're kind of in a wild, wild country of documentary filmmaking right now where some stuff might be happening that uh, viewers should know about and not just have it be snuck onto the screen without their um,
0: consent. Sam, I'm curious as someone who's been following the space for a long time, I always respond to documentaries as a journalist. And I feel like I'm always spending the first 40 minutes of any documentary being like, is this in my tribe or not? Like, do I. Do I trust this as a document or not? Like, does this one rate? And you kind of have to just suss it, like suss it through the use of evidence and whether it feels trustworthy, like there isn't a rule book, there isn't a playbook, and perhaps there shouldn't be. Like, I'm not arguing that it is a reasonable response to documentaries to apply the standards of a person who's been working in journalism for more than two decades to them, (laughs) but it is what I do. Um, I'm curious if this, piece uh, or the the broader trends surrounding it have kind of changed the way you look at the documentaries you see over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very big and sort of ongoing questions. I mean, I think uh, a lot of the most interesting documentary filmmakers right now are ones who are really kind of pushing back against the, the journalistic paradigm. And that's not to say they're necessarily making things up, but I think just coming from the viewpoint that you know, documentaries are constructed, audiences know this. Uh, you know, I, I can go both ways on this. I mean, I, I certainly like when documentaries make me question what I'm seeing. Um, even something like like the TV series, the rehearsal is very much kind of in that vein. Um, but, you know, I don't like being lied to. And I think, you know, the Roadrunner, the Anthony Bourdain example that Dana brings up is a great example. I don't, I don't think it would have been a bad thing in the documentary if they were like, here we are in the studio putting together this AI. Here's how we you know, came up with the simulation of Anthony Bourdain's voice. Um, you can respond to it as if you're hearing him, as if this is really weird and unethical. Here are the things you need to know to make this decision. That's all fine with me. I think of kind of sweeping that under the rug is when we get into trouble, and that's part of this whole commercial imperative to just kind of make the slickest easiest, most emotional experience for people and not one that makes them question what they're seeing. And I think that's when you really start
0: to get into trouble. All right. Well, the piece is inside the documentary Cash Grab. It's at The Hollywood Reporter. And Sam, thank you for joining us. And you're going to stick around with us for endorsements and for Plus. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Moving on. Um, Let's endorse Dana. Dana.
2: All right. I'm very happy about my endorsement this week because it dovetails nicely with our David Bowie documentary segment. And it's also just one of my favorite Onion articles of all time. I think I remember circulating this or seeing it circulated in 2016 after David Bowie died. It's just a a really goofy imagining of David Bowie and Iman's marriage. A nice part of the documentary, by the way, the Moon Age Daydream documentary, it's brief but great, is the moment when David Bowie and Iman meet because at least as the doc frames it, you know, he had been somebody who was very peripatetic throughout his life life who never sort of felt that he belonged anywhere or had a home and that meeting Iman in late middle age and getting married to her was a really transformative event of his life. I've seen other interviews with him where he was asked what what achievement he was proudest of in his life. And he said, marrying my wife, which is extremely moving. But this piece is just a very silly imagining of life at home with David Bowie and Iman. The the headline is David Bowie asks Iman if they should just do lasagna again. And it's just a very banal (laughs) evening in the life of these two superstars. I just have to read one sentence from it, or a couple sentences to give you a sense of the article's tone. Sources confirmed the nine-time platinum recording artist, who claimed at one point in the 70s to have subsisted on a diet of red peppers, cocaine, and milk, then preheated the oven, started boiling a pot of water, and searched around inside the kitchen cabinets, at one point asking Iman if she had seen the good baking pan. In addition, (laughs) Bowie, who allegedly had an affair with Rolling Stone's lead vocalist Mick Jagger at the pinnacle of the glam rock era, suggested that the fridge needed a quick wipe down while grabbing a carrot, a cucumber and a box of organic spinach to make a quick salad. (laughs) It's just so goofy. (laughs) And they go on to talk about the shopping list and Iman asks them to get drain cleaning fluid or something. It's so silly, but like such a great juxtaposition of these two larger than life figures with actual
0: normal married life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I never read that one. I love it. <laughs> um Sam, what do you have for us today?
1: Uh I am endorsing actually reading Robert Caro's book, The Power Broker. Uh Hey It may seem slightly ridiculous to endorse what is, I think, one of the most acclaimed books of the 20th century, Um, but it's a 1,200-page biographer of city planner Robert Moses, and it kind of became famous newly during the Zoom era as a sort of ubiquitous Zoom backdrop touchstone that um, also seems to be up there with War and Peace as a book that everyone owns but nobody has read. Uh, I have started reading it, and my impetus is the debut next month in New York of David Hare's play Straight Line Crazy, which is a one-man show that stars Ray finds as Robert Moses. So I've decided this is it's now or never, dove in, I'm setting my deadline for October 26th, which is opening night, and it turns out this book that everybody thinks is great is actually great. Uh, I am enjoying it a lot, I'm now going to be a person who is excitedly telling people that uh, American cities never had a budget before the earliest 20th century. Uh, so if you run into me, I apologize in advance. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm endorsing it here. I'm telling as many people as I can, uh, partly because I'm excited, but also because <laughs> I want to look like a complete idiot if I don't follow through on this. Um, this is my way of nudging myself forward. So feel free to join me and read along or just ask me how the reading's going because uh, every little potential humiliation helps.
2: Wow, I want to hear whether you make that October twenty-sixth deadline. That is one giant reading endeavor. I would start that book thinking I hope that I finish it by the end of the year, not a month from now. (laughs) By the end of my lifetime. I I mean if
1: I like if I slow down in the middle of something, I tend to stop. So I'm I'm but you know, it's forty pages a day. I am at twelve percent as of last night. I started two days ago, so pray for mojo.
0: Excellent. Um, All right. Well, my endorsement this week is take an art class. Take an art class. I had the best experience this weekend with my husband and my two sons. We signed up for a marbling class at a space in Los Angeles called Maker's Mess, which is downtown in a development called The Row. Um, And we took a marbling class from a textile artist named Mercedes Rex. uh, And it was so Fun like I don't know if any of you guys have done paper marbling. It's you know if you if you ever bought like a little notebook on a trip to Italy. um, It's that sort of beautiful swirly patterned technique that is often applied to stationery and papers. Can sometimes be applied to clothing and textiles. but we really had the benefit of this artist's experience, you know, g- getting all the materials right so that it was very easy to do uh, as novices and for some of us as, like, um, you know, very young novices who had never been to a grown up art class before. Um, but man, it is just fun to like play with color and make something beautiful if your uh, work workdays are filled with black and white dots on screens. So if this speaks to you at all, I would say find a couple hour art workshop near you and go do it. What a delight now that things can be done indoors again with, you know, some, some sense of comfort from all the shots and boosters. Um, so take an art class. If you're in LA, check out maker's mess, which has a lot of regular art classes. Uh, and if you're anywhere, check out Mercedes Rex, who is just an amazing textile artist and she sells kits and scarves. And, uh, you can follow her on Instagram and watch a bunch of cool videos of marbling, which is extremely mesmerizing and beautiful to watch. Um, Art, do it. It's great. That's my endorsement.
2: Wow, wow. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I can testify, Julia, having seen you last weekend in LA and looked at your fresh marbling art when it was still drying from the class, that it was really, really cool stuff, like amazingly sophisticated patterns for people who were doing the technique for the first time. So she must be
0: a good teacher. Yeah, she really, she really is amazing. So yeah, check it out. All right. Well, Dana, thank you as always. It's a pleasure. Sam, thank you for rounding out our trio of guests and sticking with us for plus. Thank you so much, Julia. You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's at slate.com slash And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Send us suggestions for topics, argue with us, whatever you want. Our intro music is by the composer, Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. I'm Julia Turner. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.